Hello, my friends. This is Yaakov Wolby, and this is the Parsha Podcast, coming to you this week from an undisclosed location north of the border in Canada. As I mentioned last week, uh, we drove to Canada. We did it over two days, 12 and a half hours of driving every day. It was wonderful. But we're here now. We're in Canada, and it's not quite vacation. I wouldn't call this vacation. And after all, I already recorded four new podcast episodes this week. So I'm working maybe as hard, maybe even harder than I do in Houston. We don't really have vacation. Torah doesn't go on vacation. Our souls don't go on vacation. We never take off time from breathing. If Torah is like oxygen for our soul, we always have to pump in some lifeblood into our soul, and the summer is no exception. The Parsha Podcast is working, thank God, on a wonderful streak of not missing a single week, going back already years, with the help of the Almighty and with your dedicated listenership. And we are so excited to talk about Parshas Pinchas. So let's begin. Our Parsha begins with the aftermath of last week. We had the episode of the Daughters of Moab, They seduced the Jewish men to sin, and once the Jewish people sin, they also do idolatry, and there's a total mayhem, and then there's this very public episode where Zimri, the leader of the tribe of Shimon, he consorts with Kazbi, this Midianite princess, and Pinchas comes, and he avenges the vengeance of God, and he kills them. And he stops the plague. And in our parsha, we begin right in the aftermath of that. Pinchas is lauded. He is promoted to becoming a Kohen, even though he's the grandson of Aaron. He was not a Kohen beforehand. He's going to be a permanent Kohen. In fact, he's going to serve as a high priest. His descendants will be high priests. And then we have the commandment to wage war against the Midianites. These are the perpetrators of this plot against the nation, even though the implementation of this war does not happen in our parsha. The Jewish people are counted. And with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, there's no overlap between this counting and the one at the beginning of the book. All the people who were subject to the decree of dying in the wilderness, they are all dead. These are the people that are going to enter the land and have the land allocated to them. We have the episode of the daughters of Slavchad. Moshe requests that... The Almighty appoints a successor for him. Joshua is appointed. And then the Parsha ends with the delineation of the festivals and specifically the sacrifices of every festival. This is a very long Parsha, 168 verses. The second longest Parsha in the Torah after only Parsha's Nasso. And we're going to focus today on a little bit of a side plot, a side part of the Parsha. But it's an idea... Or it's, it's, it's an, it's an episode. It's an element of the story that's going to help us round out some of the previous parts of this book. It's going to resolve some questions. It's going to raise some other questions, but it will advance our knowledge of the parsha. And once we have an idea that we develop from this subplot of the parsha, we're going to expand that with the help of the Almighty into a larger theme that's found throughout the parsha and is very relevant to our lives. So the part begins, Pinchas is given his promotion. We're told to go wage war against the Midianites. And then there is another census, accounting of the nation. And they're counted not only by the tribe, but also by the family. They're divided up into different families, and each family is counted independently. And when counting the families of the tribe of Reuven, so that's the oldest son of Jacob, we briefly revisit the Korach rebellion of a few weeks ago. You recall the Korach rebellion. Korach is Moshe's first cousin. And he lays claim on Moshe's throne, on Aaron's throne, and he riles up some support, 250 co-conspirators, Dathan and Abiram, and they begin this very public and strident attack on Moshe and Aaron. 
Now, when counting the tribe of Ruvain, we revisit the two malcontents, Dathan and Abiram. The verse tells us, chapter 26, verse 9, it's talking about the sons of Eliav. And it tells us that among the sons of Eliav are Dathan and Abiram. And these are the same ones, Dathan and Abiram, who incited the nation against Moshe and against Aaron in the episode in the congregation of Korach. And then we're told what happened to them. We revisit that as well. And the, the mouth of the earth opened up and it swallowed them and it swallowed Korach. And there was the death of the congregation of Korach. And then there was a fire that consumed the 250 people, the 250 men who wanted to serve as high priests. And this was something that is a, a miracle that everyone witnessed. And then in verse 11, it tells us, Uvne Korach, lo mesu. And the sons of Korach did not die. So in the counting of the nation, we go off on this tangent and we remember, we recall the Korach rebellion and Dathan and Abiram and what happened to them and how Korach and Dathan and Abiram and everyone that was part of their camp and the 250 people, they all died. But the sons of Korach did not die. That's verse 11. Now, who are the sons of Korach? So we're not told over here in the whole book of Numbers. They're not mentioned by name. But way back in the book of Exodus, in chapter 6, verse 24, we read that Korach had three sons. The sons of Korach are Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaf. So Korach had three sons. And even though Korach and his family, and we thought that meant everyone, and the perpetrators and the co-conspirators and Dathan Abiram, two of the men, everyone that's part of this congregation died, was swallowed up or died in the fire. The sons of Korach did not die. Korach is the anarchist. He's the one who says, we don't need Moshe and Aaron. We don't need leadership. Everyone's holy. Only when... You have a few people that are holy. They are the leaders and everyone else is subservient to them. But here, the whole nation is entirely holy. Why do you lord over us? Korach, the anarchist, who wanted to upend the system of governance and leadership of the people, he died. Dathan and Abiram died. Their children died. 250 co-conspirators, all of them were swallowed up and were burnt in a fire. But the sons of Korach did not die. That's all the verse tells us. Now, what, in fact, happened to them? So there's a lot of discussion about what happened to the sons of Korach. Some of the opinions say that they were completely unaffected. They never joined the rebellion against Moshe and Aaron. They were always committed to Moshe and Aaron. They always maintained their fidelity to Moshe and Aaron. And they didn't die, not in the plague, and not in the fire, and not in the sinkhole. They survived. They were completely unaffected by the events that swept up Korach and his rebellion. That's the opinion that's featured in some of the commentaries of the Targum Yonasan, amongst others. You read Rashi, and you read something very surprising, very intriguing. Rashi tells us, that the sons of Korach did not die, even though they were part of the rebellion initially. When Korach initially mounted his rebellion, Korach's sons, they joined. But at the time of the sinkhole, when they were all being swallowed up, they had a, a thought, a fluttering thought, of repentance in their heart. And while everyone else was swallowed up, gobbled up, alive, into Gehenna, into purgatory, into hell, they had a special place in hell carved up for them. They were cordoned off on a very high place in Gehenna, and that is where they resided. Rashi is telling us, the sons of Korach did not die even though they were swallowed up in Gehenom, 
They weren't completely engulfed, and they remained there in a very high place. And the Midrash actually says that there's this very, very high place in Gehenom where the heat of the flames of the fire of purgatory don't reach. So they didn't die. Doesn't mean that they survived completely. They were swallowed up, but they didn't end up at the same place where everyone else who was swallowed up ended up because they had this moment of repentance. There was this high place in Gehenom where they ended up in. That's the opinion that Rashi brings. It's featured in the Midrash. It's featured in the Talmud in a few different places. Now, in other comments in the Midrash, we read other opinions as to what happened to the sons of Korach. Some say that even though they were amongst the congregation of Korach, and the sinkhole opens, and it swallows up all the perpetrators of Korach and his rebellion, the sons of Korach, these three men, Asir, Elkanah, Aviasaf, they floated in the air. And even though the, the earth opens up below them, they were suspended, they were levitating in the air. And that's how they survived. Other versions of the Midrash say they, they were like in the ground, but they maintained this elevation as if they were on a mast of a ship, and that's how they didn't get swallowed up. Yet another opinion tells us that when the sinkhole opened, it ripped open the ground, but the specific point where they were standing on did not open up. So you have a vast sinkhole all around them, and it's swallowing up Korach, horse people, and the co-conspirators. But the point where they were at, these three people, it remained firm ground. And there were three pillars, one for each one of these three sons of Korach. These three standing pillars amidst all the destruction of the sinkhole. So regardless of which opinion we're going to follow, at least the majority of the opinions here featured about the sons of Korach, it tells us that they were saved at the very last moment. Now, the sons of Korach are featured elsewhere in the Parsha. After the nation is counted, so they counted, you know, all the tribes are counted, and then the Levites are counted. And in chapter 26, verse 58, it delineates the families of the Levites. And it tells us the family of Korach. Korach, well, Korach's not around anymore. Says Rashi, Korach, it's not about Korach himself, it's the sons of Korach. They survived at the last moment, however they did, and they did not die, and they're still part of the people, and they're still counted amongst the nation. Now, this idea that the sons of Korach did not die, it resolves some important questions. You recall, perhaps, in Parshas Korach, Korach, he mounted a rebellion. And Rashi, at the beginning of Parshas Korach, Rashi's working really hard to figure out why would Korach was wise, was talented, intelligent. Why would he launch this rebellion against Moshe? And Rashi tells us that one of the factors that led to his insurrection was a flash of prophecy. Korach had a flash of prophecy. And he saw in his vision that his descendant, Samuel, is going to be greater to some degree than Moshe and Aaron. We know that on one dimension at least, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, he was greater than Moshe and Aaron. And Korach, he foresaw that and he says, okay, I'll definitely survive. And in the merit of Samuel, I'll be able to overcome Moshe and Aaron, who are not as great, at least on one, one level, one dimension, as Samuel. Now, if Korach and his entire family were all permanently swallowed up by the sinkhole, well, then Samuel would not be around. There would be no one around to beget Samuel. And we know, of course, that Samuel did, in fact, exist. We have the books. Samuel 1, Samuel 2, it's the same Samuel. 
but he did exist, the great prophet. And he was, in fact, a descendant of Korach. So obviously, Korach must have had some living, surviving descendants. We also know that the descendants of Korach, we have records, they served as singers in the temple. Of course, the Levim, the Levites, they don't do service in the temple, only the Kohanim do that. But they serve as ushers, doormen, and singers and musicians in the temple. And the descendants of Korach, we're told, were singers in the temple. So obviously, he had some surviving descendants. We also know that the sons of Korach, they authored some psalms. The book of Psalms, 150 chapters. It's primarily authored by King David. But the Talmud calculates for us that there are actually 10 different authors in Psalms, and 11 of the Psalms are authored by the sons of Korach. If you want to read them, you can still read them. Psalms 42, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 84, 85, 87, and 88. These 11 Psalms were authored by the sons of Korach. So obviously, they survived, they endured, they were able to author these Psalms that we still have today. Now, there's still some uncertainty. We have all these different opinions as to how the sons of Korach were saved at the very last moment. Rashi seems to understand that this place that was carved out for them, that was apportioned for them in the very higher spheres of Gehenna, Rashi seems to say that they remain there. So everyone else gets swallowed up, and the sons of Korach also get swallowed up, but not completely. And they remain in limbo until some future date. But it's not clear from Rashi how and when they eventually left. You know, they they remained in this high place in Gehenna, but if they remained there indefinitely, how did they emerge from that high place in Gehenna to father children, to father the forebears and Samuel, an author these psalms and do some work in the temple, even though there are some indications in the sources that they composed, listen to this, they composed some of the psalms, maybe all the psalms, while they were still trapped in the state of limbo, suspended between this world and purgatory. But there's at least one source that tells us that they were in limbo, trapped in this high place in Gehenom, for a very long time. In the Talmud, in Kiddushin, on page 31b, in the commentary of the Tosfos, they cite a Midrash that talks about an individual named Asaf, Asaf maybe, as it's today pronounced. He was a descendant of Korach, and he sang over the fact that the temple doors, the gates of the temple, were swallowed up. The verse tells us in Lamentations that when the temple was destroyed, this is Lamentations chapter 2, verse 8, when the temple was destroyed, the gates of the temple, they were not subject to the attacks of the Babylonians. And they instead were swallowed up into the ground. And that, of course, is a sad thing. You know, the, the gates of the temple, the entrance place of the holy temple of the Almighty, those doors are now swallowed up in the ground. It's very tragic. But the sons of Korach, they were delighted with that. Why? So the Midrash that Tosos here cites, it gives us an analogy. There was once a poor maidservant, and she had an earthenware pail. It wasn't an expensive pail. It was a very inexpensive pail. And she went to the well, and she wanted to fill up some water. But alas, the pail fell into the well, and she was so sad, and she was crying. 
But then the maidservant of the king also came to the well, and she also had a pail, but her pail was not made out of earthenware, it was made out of gold. And she also wanted to scoop up some water, and it also fell down. Now the the other maidservant who lost the pail of earthenware, she started singing. And she said, well, when my pail fell down, no one's going to go down, do this whole dangerous extraction, go into the water and pull out the, the pail. It's such, it's such an inexpensive pail. No one's going to go down just for that. But now that there is a golden pail that has been submerged in the water, now I know that for sure they're going to go retrieve that pail. And once they're there, they'll see my pail as well, and they'll bring it up as well. So too, the sons of Korah, they were submerged in the ground, and everyone seemed to forget about them. But now that they see that there's something else submerged in the ground with them, namely the doors of the temple, and that they're definitely going to retrieve. And they started singing, thank you, thank you, that the doors of the temple were swallowed into the ground. Because once they come to retrieve those doors, maybe they'll retrieve us. Now, this source, even though it's a beautiful idea, it's this beautiful, tragic, poignant story. This source, at least there's one source that tells us that even when the temple was destroyed, this is nearly a millennium after the Korach rebellion, some of Korach's descendants were still trapped and were still hoping to be extricated. I did see some sources that talk about when Messiah comes, the Korach may be Korach himself, but his descendants are going to be redeemed. So there are still some open questions about what happened to the sons of Korach. We know they didn't die. That's so clear in the verse. 26, 11, they did not die. But what in fact did happen, it's not settled in the sources, and there are some open questions. But regardless, if you follow the storyline of this subplot of the Parsha, you find something very interesting. We have this epilogue of the events of the Korach Rebellion. Three sons, three sons of Korach. Maybe they were part of the rebellion initially, but they did not die. Maybe they didn't quite live. You can't call being suspended in a high level of purgatory that that's real life. But they didn't die. And the reason why they didn't die is because they did a degree of repentance. Rashi says that they had a fluttering feeling that a sensation of repentance. They were swallowed up in the sinkhole. But they had this thought of repentance. They had this inclination of repentance. And therefore, they were not completely swallowed. And we do know that the descendants of Korach went on to be contributors to the nation with the, with the Psalms, with Samuel, etc. But if you think about it, there are some amazing lessons here. These people, Asir, Elkanah, Aviasaf, which by the way, Asir means a prisoner. They were a prisoner. Elkanah, which means God acquired. They were acquired by God. Avi Asaf, my father, gathered me in. The Midrash tells us that that is indicative of the fact that God gathered them in. God responded to their repentance. These three people repented. And when did they repent? They were part of the Korach Rebellion. Initially, at least according to Rashi. And they repented at the very, very, very end. At the very last moment. The earth was already opening up and swallowing all the participants in the Korach Rebellion. And they repented. This is a very powerful idea here. It's never, ever too late to come back to God. No matter how bad a person may be, no matter how distant they may be from the Almighty, no matter how 
big of a satchel of sins and misdeeds and mistakes they may be carrying with them. There's no point where they could say, I'm helpless. I'm beyond the point of no return. No matter how bad a person is, no matter how close to the spiritual abyss they may be, think about it. The the, the Korach rebellion is being stamped out. The earth is opening up in a miraculous fashion. And then when it's all over already, they repented, or at least they had a sensation of repentance in their heart. And they were saved. There's a line that we say, even if the sharp blade is on your neck, you don't give up. So long as the candle of your soul is still flickering, you still have a chance to fix. You still have a chance to rectify. You know, one of the Psalms authored by the sons of Korach is Psalm number 47. And that is recited seven times on each day of Rosh Hashanah, right before the blowing of the shofar. Between Mincha and Musaf, we blow the shofar. And before you do that, you recite Psalm number 47, seven times. And who authored that Psalm? It's authored by the sons of Korach. And it's been suggested that this is the reason why at that particular auspicious moment in Rosh Hashanah, on the Day of Judgment, when the judgment's happening and happens most of time, we blow the shofar. And what do we invoke? We invoke the sons of Korach. Why? To remind us of this idea. It's never too late. You're being judged now. The Almighty is sitting on his throne of judgment and you are being judged. And you didn't do your due diligence. And you didn't repent. And you didn't prepare. And the judgment's happening right now. And you may think, I'm done for it. It's over. It's too late. We invoke the sons of Korach. It's never too late. Even if you mailed in the whole month of Elul, you didn't prepare for Shoshanah, you didn't examine your heart, you didn't try to improve your ways, you didn't rectify your path, you ignored the chauffeur of the whole month of Elul. Now, at the climax of Rosh Hashanah, like the sons of Korach, you can still extricate yourself. You can still pull yourself out from the doom you may be in. Says day number one, sons of Korach, remind us, it's never, ever, ever too late. Uh, Unless it is. If you're dead, it's too late. If you're completely swallowed, it's too late. But up to that point, if you still have the life beating within you, you still have a chance. Now, if you examine Rashi, Rashi doesn't say that they repented. Even at the last moment, it was not a full repentance. It was a fluttering thought of repentance. It was a solitary murmuring of repentance in their heart. So not only was it at the very end, and really they were condemned and it was over, and they saved themselves, but they didn't even do a full repentance. Even a partial repentance at the very end, that was enough to save them. One feeling of repentance at the moment when it all went down, one thought of repentance, one thought of regret, of remorse, one thought of maybe I can fix this, maybe I can go back to being righteous, that was enough to save them. So we have twin lessons here. We have A, the power of a single inclination of repentance, and B, even if it's at the very last moment, one thought of repentance can save you as it saved the sons of Korach. And not only did it save them, they became transcendent personalities. 11 Psalms authored by them. Think about that. 11 Psalms. Some of the descendants of Korach became prophets, including Samuel, who on one dimension was greater than Moshe and Aaron. The Talmud in the book of Megillah, page 14a, talks about the lofty stature of descendants of the sons of Korach. It describes them as people who are 
at or standing at the zenith of the world. Who are the people that are standing at the zenith of the world? The sons of Korach. We also know that they authored songs. The Psalms were songs. As they just tell us that when someone offers a song to God, it's the highest level of expression of faith and commitment and connection that a human being can foster, can create, can forge with the Almighty. Now, the commentaries note that several of the Psalms have a unique formulation. It's a shear, which is a song, and it's a mizmor, which is another word for a song. It's a song of a song. It's a double song. It's a double praise. That's the highest of all praises. And who says this? The sons of Korach. How did they merit that? How did they achieve this lofty level? All with the last second, the 90th minute, bottom of the ninth, at the very end. The clock is ticking down. Without repentance, they earned not only salvation, but great distinction. Now, there's a lot more going on over here. If you look at the 11 Psalms, much of the literature regarding these 11 Psalms of the sons of Korach, it revolves around their unique journey and their path of repentance and what they were doing when they were swallowed up and how they expressed their standing, etc. But one of the, one of the verses in Psalms 45, verse 2, it talks about how their heart stirred with good words. And the Midrash is focusing on the fact that when they repented, it was not verbal. They didn't say any words. It was only a stirring of their heart, and that was enough for them to be accepted. Continues the Midrash, why did they not sing with their words? Why did they repent inaudibly? Why didn't they repent with their words? Why did they only rely on the stirring of the heart? Says the Midrash, when they had this repentance, purgatory in hell was already open beneath them, and the fire was dancing around them. This is at the very climax of the story. There's fire everywhere. There's open sinkholes in the ground. On one hand, they had the sinkhole. On the other hand, they had the fire. They couldn't even open their mouths. They had reached the point where speaking audibly, verbally, was impossible. All they had were thoughts in their heart. And this fluttering sense of repentance of the heart, it's inaudible, it's a wordless repentance, at the very last moment, that saved them and that elevated them to transcendent heights. So this is part of the parsha we don't usually focus on. You can read the whole parsha, and it's, it's talking about the families of Ruvain, and it, it seems to go off on this tangent with Dathan and Abiram, and, and talking a little bit, recalling some of the events of the Korach rebellion. It tells us that the sons of Korach did not die. It's a it's a subplot of the parsha, but we discover something really wonderful: the power of one feeling, of one sensation, of one stirring of the heart to repent, and how transformative that could be. But I think that if we zoom out to the Parsha, we find that this is a larger theme found in a bunch of places in the Parsha. You know, we would tend to discount a fluttering of the heart. We tend to assign limited value to small things. The small things that don't make the headlines, we don't really think that they have such an impact. The small acts, small individuals, the small solitary inclinations are a, a, a fluttering of the heart. It doesn't really seem to be so impactful. It doesn't really register in our eyes. But the Torah tells us otherwise. The small acts, the single solitary acts, go a very long way. The eponymous hero of the Parsha is Pinchas. And he became a Kohen. 
He wasn't a Cohen. He became a Cohen. He became an eternal high priest. Why? Because of one act. His act of valor, of gallantry, of zealotry in standing up for God and stamping out the the disgraceful act that was a desecration of God's name. With that one act, he changed everything. The Ramban, in the beginning of our parasha, tells us that if not for Pinchas, everyone would have died. There was a plague and it killed ultimately 24,000. But had Pinchas not stamped out this disgrace, it would not have stopped. It would have killed everyone, says the Ramban. So one man, one act, he saves the whole nation from destruction and he earns himself an eternal legacy. Now, of course, we would have a hard time with what Pinchas did. It seems very fanatical. And Rashi, the first Rashi in our parasha, tells us that even the tribes at the time, they ridiculed him and they embarrassed him and they denigrated him. They said, that he's behaving in a manner not fitting his paternal grandfather, Aaron, but instead he was behaving in the manner of his maternal grandfather, who is Pinchas's maternal grandfather. It's Jethro, because Moshe and his nephew Elazar married sisters. Jethro had seven daughters. Moshe married Zipporah. Elazar married another one of the daughters of Jethro, and that is Pinchas's mother. So the first Rashi in our parasha tells us that the criticism, the ridicule that Pinchas received from the other tribes, they said, you're like Jethro, but not Jethro after he converted and became righteous. Jethro, when he was an idolater, and he was still fattening calves for idolatry. That's who you channeled in your act of zealotry. That's what they said. But the Torah attributes him not to Jethro, but to Aaron. And this act, this single act, saved the entire people. One act, just like the sons of Korach, unlocked tremendous ramifications and consequences that rippled throughout the whole nation and throughout the life of Pinchas for eternity. I'll give you one more example of this phenomenon. Now listen to this. After Pinchas is promoted, and we're told who the perpetrators were, the nation is told to wage a war against Midian. This is chapter 25, verse 17. Go attack the Midianites and destroy them, defeat them. Why? What's the causis belli, if I pronounce that correctly? What's the reason why we should wage war against Midian? Because they attacked you? And they sent the princess of Midian, Cosby, and she was the one who contributed towards this debacle, this fiasco that did so much harm to the Jewish nation. So when the Torah tells us to wage war against Midian, it also gives us the reason. They tricked you, they caused this whole affair and the affair of Cosby. And even though in our parsha the war against Midian does not happen, it happens later on, but it's juxtaposed to the events of chapter 25 and the sin and the seduction of the Jewish men and the, the idolatry and then this very public behavior of Cosby and Zimri. And therefore, we're told to wage war against Midian. Okay. But if you think about it, if you read the chapter, chapter 25, very carefully, you'll notice a big problem. If you go back to the beginning of the affair, it was not the Midianite women who caused the Jewish people to sin. Rather, it was the Moabite women. It sounds similar. Midianite, Moabite, different nations. The Moabite women, they seduced the Jewish men and they got them to cleave to Baal Peor. Chapter 25, verse 1, the Jews began to sin, be promiscuous, with the Moabite women. And then they did idolatry, and they cleaved to Baal Pa'ar, etc. It doesn't mention anything about the Midianite women. 
the perpetrators were Moabite, not Midianite. Yet when we're told to wage war, we're told to wage war against the Midianites and not the Moabites. So think about it. Who's guilty here? The Moabites. And who's apparently not guilty? The Midianites. But the war is against the Midianites and not the Moabites. What's going on over here? So Rashi, in verse 18, he resolves both questions. He says that when the verse tells us that the Moabite women seduced the Jewish men, it wasn't just the Moabite women, it was also the Midianite women. And therefore, you think that the Midianites were guiltless. They weren't guiltless. They also sent their daughters to seduce the Jewish men to get them to do idolatry. So yes, the verse mentions only the Moabite women, but really the Midianite women participated as well, and therefore they are equally culpable, and therefore it made sense for us to attack them. Okay, that answers one question, why we are attacking the Midianites. But the other question, why we are not attacking the Moabites, how come they are spared? So Rashi tells us, because there is a descendant of the Moabites that's not yet been born, and her name is Ruth, and if we destroy the Moabite nation now, well, then Ruth won't be born. And because this great heroine of our history, Ruth, is going to come from the Moabites, we cannot touch the Moabites now. The Moabites, they cannot be touched because of the future Moabite, Ruth. And if we destroy Moab now, well, then Ruth won't be born by extension, David, Solomon, Messiah, etc. And thus, even though the Moabite women were guilty in this horrific crime, seducing the Jewish men, getting them to worship idolatry, and really unleashing a plague that sweeps throughout the nation, causing the death of 24,000, the Moabites are not touched at all, thanks to the future Moabite, Ruth. Again, we see this idea, the power of the individual. What one person can accomplish, one person, one Moabite heroine saves the entire Moabite nation. Pinchas, one man, one act, saves the nation, becomes an eternal Kohen. The sons of the anarchists, the sons of Korach, one small act, a repentance of the murmuring of the heart. It saves them. It earns them eternal distinction. The Psalms, the prophets, and even Samuel. And a third example, one heroine, Ruth, spares the whole nation of Moab, even though they're all guilty, they're all saved, thanks to her. Now we'll take this one step further. Rashi understands that the Midianite women were also participatory in the seduction of the Jewish men. The Arachayim, which is one of the commentators on the Torah, and as an aside, I recorded this week with my brilliant brother-in-law, Rabbi Botnik, a podcast about this commentary on the Torah, the Arachayim. But the Arachayim in chapter 25, verse 15 he argues with Rashi and he says that the Midianite women did not participate in the seduction of the Jewish men. It was only the Moabite women, not the Midianite women. And in fact, Cosby, this woman who behaved in a very publicly immoral fashion with Zimri, she was a Midianite but she was the only Midianite woman who sinned with the Jewish men. The rest of the women who seduced the Jewish men and caused this whole disaster, they were all Moabite. That's what he says. And he has some proofs to that effect. If you think about it, there's an astonishing implication here. Because of Cosby, because of one Midianite, the Almighty commanded the Jewish people to destroy the nation of Midian. So we have the Moabites. And they were certainly guilty of seducing the Jewish men and perpetrating the plague that killed 24,000. And they were completely untouched because of one woman, because of Ruth. 
By contrast, at least according to the Arachayim, the nation of Midian was destroyed due to one person who committed one crime. So we have, we have Ruth and Cosby, a Moabite and a Midianite, and one person saved her nation that was otherwise guilty and worthy of destruction. And the other person, Cosby, the Midianite, she condemned her nation that was otherwise free of any guilt. So this shows us the power of a single person, of a single act, of a single moment, of a single even fluttering feeling. Pinchas, his act of zealotry, it reverberates for all eternity. The sons of Korach, their fluttering, fleeting thought of repentance, it saves them at the last minute. It builds the foundation of an incredible legacy that includes prophets, Samuel, prime roles in the temple, and a permanent place in the Psalms. No matter how far a person is, there is no room to give up. Even the lowest of the low, even someone who's completely immersed in terrible behavior, one feeling, one thought, one fluttering sensation of repentance can change everything. And Ruth and Cosby, a Moabite and a Midianite princess, respectively, one single-handedly saves her nation from ruin and one condemns her nation. One person, one action, even a fluttering feeling in the heart, it has tremendous power. One bit of dedication, one bit of service to God, one prayer, one thought, one good deed, one good word, one good gesture, one individual can change everything. The small things are really big. They have lasting, eternal consequences. We like to end off the Parsha podcast with a question. And the question makes us sharper and more intelligent and more handsome and more beautiful. And it raises our Parsha IQ and our general intelligence as well. Here's the question. Moshe shows magnanimity to Joshua in one area but not in another. And our parsha, the successor, the heir to Moshe, is appointed. Moshe wanted his position to be inherited by his sons, but God determined otherwise. Joshua, your primary disciple, Moshe is told, he will serve as your heir. And then chapter 27, verses 18, 19, and 20, God makes some requests of Moshe. Select Joshua. Place your hands upon him. Make him stand before Elazar, the the priest, before the nation. Instruct Joshua in front of them. Give from your glory upon him, from your glory. Rashi says, some of your glory, not all of your glory. Why? So everyone should know that he is, in fact, the successor. And Moshe indeed does as instructed. The verse tells us, this is in verse 22 and 23, Moshe does as God instructed him. And he takes Joshua and he makes him stand before Elijah the high priest and before the whole nation. And he places his hands upon him and he instructs him as Hashem instructed Moshe. So Rashi has a very sharp and eagle-eyed reading of the verses. The verse tells us that when God told Moshe to place his hand upon Joshua. He says, singular, place your hand. V'samachta es yadcha, place your hand upon him. When Moshe actually does it, v'yismoch es yadav, he placed both of his hands. So Rashi tells us that Moshe was magnanimous. He did even more than he was asked for. He was commanded only to place his hand, he placed his hands, both of them. Now, part of what God wanted Moshe to do was to give from his glory. This is in verse 20. You should give from your glory. And Rashi says, what does it mean, from your glory? It means from your glory, a part of your glory, whatever that means, but not all of your glory. The face of Moshe is like the face of the sun. The face of Joshua is like the face of the moon. When Moshe fulfills that part of the instruction, Rashi tells us he gave 
from his glory. He gave a portion of his glory. So the question is, why is Moshe magnanimous in one area? God tells him, place your hand. He places both of his hands upon Joshua. But when God instructs Moshe to bestow some of his glory, some, not all. And here, Moshe does not display the same magnanimity of the hands. He only gives him some of his glory. It's an interesting question to chew over. Maybe it's a little bit of an advanced question, but you're advanced already. We're the seventh year of the Parsha podcast. We're advanced. Of course, there's a lot to go, but we are pretty advanced in our studies of of the Parsha. Why, with respect to the hand, did Moshe go above and beyond? God said, place your hand. Moshe placed his hands. And with respect to glory, God said some, and Moshe only gave some. It's a very advanced question. I'm not going to give you an answer, but I'll, I'll tell you how to find the answer, how you would approach it. Moshe positioned Joshua to best succeed. And there was a reason why it was better for Joshua to only have some of Moshe's glory, and not all, but to have both of Moshe's hands, not just one. And the question is, what's the difference between Moshe placing his hands or his hand upon Joshua and Moshe bestowing some or all of his glory upon Joshua. It was better for Joshua to not get the full glory from Moshe, just some of it, but it was better for Joshua to get both hands. Question, what's the difference? But that's how you would approach it. It's an interesting question to chew over. Yes, it's a bit more advanced, I would say, but maybe there's something that we could discover in this matter. This was delightful. This was so enjoyable. I love going through the Parsha with y'all. Next week, we have the end of the Book of Numbers. So we're getting close to the stretch run here of Year 7 of the Parsha Podcast. This was a delight. This was enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You have an incredible rest of your day. A spectacular, uplifting rest of your week. And a sensational, terrific, uplifting Transcendental Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week. Parshas Matos Mase, another double parsha to conclude the book of Numbers. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I'm speaking to you from the Torch Center North. I'm not in Houston. I'm in Canada. But like I said in the past, I consider the Torch Center like the Air Force One. Any plane that's carrying the president as Air Force One, wherever my microphone is recording a partnership podcast, that is the Torch Center. From the Torch Center North, send me an email, rabbalwidgman.com, and you take care. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.